7 through 79. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you know, if you've been in our community, we've been spending this Advent month with the pastors of our network, um, rotating around to the different congregations. So at Grace Downtown, we are one church and three congregations at this point. And uh, this morning, I had a chance to be at Grace Meridian Hill Church and preach there. And uh, it just made me, I, I spent that time under the ministry of Pastor Duke who planted that church and leads that church. And as I was under his ministry for the morning, it just made me appreciate what a gift God has given us in bringing this brother and his family to this city many years ago. Um, all throughout it, uh, just drawing me closer and closer to the presence of God. And so uh, I'm so delighted that he's with us this evening. And I'm gonna ask you to come on up, brother. Uh, he's no stranger to this congregation. Um, in fact, uh, I will mention this regularly, that several of you were under Duke's ministry when he was here as a pastor uh, at downtown. So I know his uh, reach goes long. But, brother, let me pray for you. Here, why don't we do our little dance now? I'll move it to this side. Because, uh, there, there we go. go. Yeah. God, thank you so much for your grace in Duke's life. Thank mm. you for his fruitful ministry. I pray now, uh, as you've always done, you would come near to us through him. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening. It's a joy to be here together with you tonight, especially during this special season, a season of hope, a season of remembering the triumph of good over evil, a season of waiting and arrival. I'm talking, of course, about the release of Star Wars. Uh, speaking of Star Wars, I, I had a lot of fun yesterday uh, when one of the members of my congregation sent me a, a picture from one of the past Star Wars movies, Episode 3. It actually uh, it was a screenshot of a bootlegged copy of the movie from China, where the original movie was dubbed and translated into Chinese, and then from there was retranslated back into English 
by subtitles, and so, of course, a lot of stuff is lost in translation, as you might imagine. So, for example, how do you, how do you translate Jedi Council? I mean, how do you do that, right? And so, apparently, there is a word in Chinese that means something like Council of Elders. But then you got to find a way to work in the idea of Jedi, and how do you do that? And so there's another word that means something like a religious, there it is, religious gathering of elders. And so keeping in mind that Presbyterianism is a form of church government in which leaders are called elders, well, they got to translate it back into English from there. So on Facebook, I get this picture of a scene in which Anakin Skywalker, who of course becomes Darth Vader eventually, that's the story, he's talking about the Jedi Council, and we have there in this screenshot in the subtitles where Anakin says, I'm coming from the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> which, you have to understand what this means to me, right? Because that then means that I am a minister of the Jedi Council. And some of you are, you know, saying to yourself, you know, I always knew there was something special about this place, right? Um, so as we begin uh, this evening, uh, I offer you this uh, benediction, Grace Presbyterian Church. May the force be with you. Um, and also with you, no, that would be that would be Anglican. This is okay. Uh, and speaking of Presbyterianism, that may be this may be my last sermon. Uh, <laughs> all right. Hey, when you look in the Bible, every time someone is told about the birth of God's Son, they erupt in singing. That's what we all do, after all, isn't it? When you hear of good news, when you hear of great news, when you're overcome with joy and anticipation. When was the last time that you couldn't hold back the song of your heart? You see, if you get the Advent story right, you don't respond with just a, a, a simple assent or the nod of, your head, or, or just with intellectual agreement, if you get the Advent story right, you respond with an explosion of the heart. Do you have the songs of Advent in your heart tonight, friends? Zechariah is one of these individuals who sings a song upon hearing about the news of Jesus' birth. Who is Zechariah, you ask? Well, we don't actually know too much about him, but we do know this. He's the father of John the Baptist. That's who the his at the beginning of verse 67 is. Earlier in the chapter, we're told that Zechariah was a priest in Israel. We're told that he and his wife Elizabeth are righteous in the sight of God, and that they actually had no children. And in fact, in their old age, they had pretty much given up hope of having a child. But then that one day, while serving in the temple as he was fulfilling his regular duties as a priest, Zechariah was met by an angel, and he was told that his wife Elizabeth would become pregnant, nearly miraculously, in her old age, and that their son would be a great prophet, a, a forerunner to the Messiah, he was told. 
Zechariah, as you and I might have, hesitated a little bit to believe the angel. And so as a form of rebuke, correction, the angel actually struck him mute. He was unable to talk for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Finally, his son John was born, and on the day of the baby's naming, Zechariah's tongue was finally set loose. He could talk again, and today's passage is sort of a transcript of the song he sang, the first words out of his mouth, and this is what we learn. First, that it's a song of victory, and secondly, that it's a song for the vanquished. A song of victory and a song for the vanquished. Let's take a look. First, a song of victory. I mean, imagine, just imagine not being able to speak for almost a whole year. Uh, some of you think about that and you just say, I'd, I'd probably die. <laughs> I wouldn't make it. Some of you know people you wish they wouldn't speak for a whole year, right? Imagine this. What would be the first words out of your mouth? What were the first things out of Zechariah's mouth? How does he start this song? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because what? Because I can finally talk again? Because God has answered my prayers and given me a child? No. Praise be to the Lord because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they get the desire of their heart, their child, didn't they? That matters to them and to God, but their greatest desire, their greatest joy, what made him in this moment almost just look past his son, he does sing about his son, but he doesn't get there until two-thirds of the way down, you see. What really overwhelmed Zechariah's heart was the arrival of the Messiah and the rescue that he would bring. Zechariah's song is a song about the coming Messiah's triumph over his enemies. In verse 71, he sings about salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. In verse 74, again, he says the Messiah will rescue us from the hand of our enemies. This is a song of victory. If you had asked the people living in Zechariah's day what salvation and rescue from our enemies referred to, they probably would have told you, well, that's the day when the Messiah would come and free us from oppression from the Roman Empire. That's the day the Messiah would come and crush the Romans. After all, they were an oppressed people, essentially in slavery, under occupation. They were longing for a military rescue, quite understandably. They wanted political freedom. And it's true, the grace of God does show up in the social and in the political realms. But Zechariah has a wide-angle lens on this victory. We see here that he ties it to God's covenant with Abraham. That's the language used in verse 73, a reference to Genesis 12 and 15 and 22, when God promised that Abraham would become the spiritual father of many nations. That tells us that Zechariah isn't only singing about Israel and her political rescue, but that he's singing about all ethnic backgrounds and their spiritual rescue 
as well. And the enemies over whom the Messiah triumphs therefore aren't just one group of people like Rome. Rather, they are all the ugly manifestations of sin and evil that plague this world, your lives. Yes, including structural evils and oppression, even death itself, as well as Satan and the selfishness of sin in my own heart. Friends, in Jesus, God promises you victory in him. Colossians 2 talks about this in the New Testament, telling us that in the death of Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're, we're told about the power of Jesus' resurrection, that one day, then the end will come when Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. In Hebrews 2, we're told that in the incarnation, the putting on a flesh of God the Son, that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the de devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, why was Jesus born that first Christmas morn? Why? Not simply to make your life easier or to make you happier or to give you a little bit of spiritual inspiration each day. Jesus was born to die and he died and rose from the dead to give us victory. Victory over poverty, victory over racism, victory over human trafficking, victory over the displacement of refugees, victory over terrorism and mass shootings because he came to give us victory, we just heard, over death, and victory over depression and victory over cancer. And don't you dare forget victory over sin that dwells in our hearts Victory over the horrors of hell, victory over fear, victory over your bad temper, victory over your habit of lying all the time to make yourself look good. Make your own list. What do you need to personally believe today about the victory of Christ? Some of these victories are enjoyed here and now, some not until Christ returns one day, his second advent. But the victory over every manifestation of sin and of evil, far as the curse is found, has already been won in the cross of Jesus, and that victory is yours. Hallelujah. As Pastor Russ Whitfield tweeted recently, helpfully, Advent means violence, oppression, injustice, and death itself have an expiration date. Do you believe that? 
Advent means the new heavens and the new earth, the renewal and perfection of all things has a guaranteed on-time arrival. Do you believe that? Not always. Because <laughs> sometimes it's hard to believe this victory, even when you're told about it. Especially during times like these in our world when just about everything feels nuts. Isn't that the case? The words of Archbishop Desmond Tutu feel like an apt summary of these troubling days. He once wrote, God, we know you're in control, but can't you make it a little bit more obvious? For some of you, victory feels far off even unreal. You're tired, ready to throw in the towel, give up in the fight for justice, in the fight against sin. And so what do you do? What do you do? What you do is you take into your heart the word picture that Zechariah himself gives us here in verse 69. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And if you can get what he's getting at there, you'll understand how awesome this is. God has raised up a horn. This is a picture of a horn. Not like a trumpet or a musical instrument in this case, but rather a horn as in the horn of a deer or the horn of a ram or the horn of a wild bull. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the horn became a symbol, understandably, of power. The horn came to symbolize people who had great power, military and political rulers, those with kingly Power. In fact, the language of cutting off the horn became a metaphor of stripping someone of their power or their influence. And so you can understand how in the Old Testament, the horn became a favorite symbol of the coming Messiah because the horn was a sign of tremendous strength and victory in conflict. So as we're talking about the victory of Jesus, what are you picturing in your hearts, O oh weary ones? Do you see a powerful horn piercing its enemies, or do you see? Last August, my family and I had a fun chance to visit the Brooklyn Zoo. One of my favorite moments in this trip to the zoo was our visit to the rhino exhibit. You see, my two-year-old son, Jeremiah, his favorite stuffed animal is a little rhino whom he calls Nino, and it just might be his best friend. I'm pretty convinced of it. It's cute, it's soft, it's cuddly, it's light blue all over except at the very tip of his nose there's a little, uh, cute, white little nub of a horn for this cute little rhinoceros. And so we're at the rhino exhibit, and this is the first time Jeremiah has ever seen a real-life rhino, 
a real-life rhino, which, of course, looks nothing like his little nino, right? And so I say, hey, Jeremiah, there's a rhino. I'm pointing over there across the fence. And at first, Jeremiah looks up as if to say, you know, don't be ridiculous, Dad. That's, that's not a rhino, right? Uh, it's nothing like what it looks like in the toy store or in my arms. And then finally, you know, he does look up and he finally sees the real rhino, and then he kind of gives it a look of skepticism. He's not so sure, and then even loses interest because he's looking at this massive, big, ugly, gray animal rather than this baby blue, huggable, little cute little thing. And he's, most of all, he's looking at this thing that has this terrifying, sharp, horn at the end of his nose rather than his nino soft little white polyester nub. You see, some of us feel defeated tonight because we're acting like what Zechariah is describing as the horn of salvation is nothing more than a little polyester nub. You don't see it in your heart. You don't see the might and the power of the resurrection piercing through whatever is plaguing your head, your heart, your life in this world. Do you see, dear friends, with eyes of faith, the horn of salvation piercing the darkness. Do you see the horn of salvation piercing injustice and oppression? Do you see the horn of salvation piercing the penalty of sin on the cross for you? Do you see the horn of salvation piercing death itself in the empty tomb? You see, because for many Christians, you know what you need to know about what Jesus promises you. For us, the problem isn't that we have the wrong theology in the head, but rather that you have the wrong picture in your heart. Do you see the horn of salvation of Christ? You see it in a way that gives you growing confidence in him. Confidence that in due time and at times becomes so rich and secure that you begin to talk like Zechariah, where he's so sure that he begins to talk about the coming of Christ in the past tense. It hasn't happened yet in time, and yet in verse 68, how does he write? How does he sing? He says, he has come. He has come to his people. He has redeemed them indeed already. It's a song of victory. Are you learning to sing it, dear friends? But secondly, and more quickly, it's a song for the vanquished. For the vanquished. For those that can admit and confess that they are just about defeated in themselves. How do you share this victory? Who qualifies 
to get in on it. Look at verse 79. On whom does the light shine? On those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. For whom does Advent dawn? Not the happy and the cheery and those that are full and have it all together, contrary to our typical Christmas celebrations. Advent dawns on the needy, on those that feel lost, those in the darkness, those that feel defeated, those that know that they're in much darkness. And this exactly is what John's ministry, John Zechariah's son, whom he sings about in the second half of this song, John's ministry was all about. He was all about preparing the way for the coming Savior. In verse 76, Zechariah says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of his sins because of the tender mercy of our God. You know, sometimes people say, hey, do you want to hear the good news first or do you want to hear the bad news first? John says, I don't want to give you a choice. I'm telling you the bad news first. You're sinful. You are full of selfishness. It's like a spiritual cancer, and you're powerless to do anything about it, not for yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't rescue yourself. You can't bring yourself back to life, spiritually speaking. But he does that in order that the good news might be good. Why? Because you will never seek a savior unless you believe you need to be saved. Because you'll never actually be looking for light unless you can confess that you're in darkness, will you? You'll never go to the table for food unless you know you're hungry. And you have an appetite. You'll never be desperate for life unless you can admit that you've got a whole lot of death still lingering in you. And this is what John points us to as he again and again calls the people of God to repentance, to honesty about their sin. We call him John the Baptist. Do you know how strange that was in that time? Why did baptism become such a trademark for him in his ministry? Because nobody did it. You see, back in the Jewish community in that first century day, it was only non-Jewish people, Gentile sinners, who were washed with water when they converted to Judaism. Sort of a symbol of needing washing, spiritual purification. Jews were rarely, if ever, baptized for the confession and forgiveness of sins. John was the guy that said, y'all need to get washed. I need to get washed. Prepare him room. There, behold the Lamb of God. Are you ready? Are you desperate? Are you defeated? That he might bring you the victory that he alone can bring. On our Christmas tree, we have a whole variety of Christmas ornaments. And the other day, uh, my daughter and I were admiring them together. And we noticed the collection that we have of uh, the little figures from The Incredibles, that old uh, animation cartoon uh, from Pixar, right? Superhero family. A lot of fun. And so we were looking at Mr. Incredible, who, of course, isn't looking so incredible with a broken arm. Uh, to little Edna and baby Jack-Jack and the different characters. And then 
uh, my daughter gets to this one character, and his name, if you've seen the movie, his name is Syndrome. He's the bad guy, right? He's the evil uh, genius with buck teeth and big hair who is out to ruin the world and end all superheroes forever. Uh, my daughter, not even knowing the movie or this character, just picking up on his facial features, she looks at him and she says, Daddy, is he a bad guy? She was right to notice because everything else on the tree was so happy and sparkly. A Christmas tree. This character didn't seem to belong on the Christmas tree. This character didn't seem to belong in Christmas itself. And so I turned to her and I said, well, sweetie, Christmas, you know, is for bad guys too. Because sometimes even you and me, we can be bad guys too, can't we? And that's good news. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who was martyred for his faith in Nazi Germany, once wrote, God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God is near to lowliness. God loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. If that's God's preferred person and place, the only question that remains is that if you want him near to you, will you go there? Will you become like that? Will you let those words, those realities describe you? Lowly, unseemly, weak, broken. You see, because Advent is a promise of victory, but it's victory for the vanquished. The vanquished who are those who are struggling with poverty, but who are still in that crying out to God for help. Those that are vanquished, it feels almost defeated, it feels by the power and sin, but so hungry and desperate, even with joy, pursuing after the one that you know can save you, Jesus himself. Advent is for the weak, for the needy, for those who admit they're defeated by sin in their own power and the roughness of this world, but you got to get low. And you got to get small. Kind of like a baby in a manger. Because victory was located down there. Will you go there? Maybe Christmas might be the first time for you to do just that. Because, friends, Advent is a promise of victory for the vanquished. Do you want it? Will you confess that that's who you are? Receive it, victory for you. Let's pray. And so we seek you with lowliness of heart, Jesus, asking that you would just give us a, a little taste of grace today, that we'd be able to bring to you all of our exhaustion and all of our neediness and all of our helplessness and all of our desperation that we would be filled with faith and strength by a little glimpse of this massive, indestructible, victorious horn of salvation whose name is Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.